By February 1747, Swedenborg was a few years into an extended process of spiritual awakening. A scrap of his journal, which came to light a century after his death, gives us a window into his experience of realizing that not only could spirits read his thoughts, but that he himself, via his own thoughts, could connect to the vast reaches of the spiritual world and even the innermost heavens. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around to hear about how to find your true self through your inner connection to God. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, lets us in on his open case searching for the identity of E. Hart, one of Swedenborg's booksellers. Then, joined by Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, we travel to 1747, where Swedenborg learned he could purify his own thoughts to connect with communities in heaven this week in history. Welcome to Inside Off the Left Eye. I'm Chelsea Odner, and on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel this last week, we unveiled the first of our new program, Chasing Swedenborg. We call it Chasing Swedenborg because we're exploring what happens when these ideas interface with the real grind of life. And the focus of this week was this idea from True Christianity 67. God created the universe so that usefulness could exist. So maybe you've been chasing this idea in your life since watching or listening to Monday's show. Or if this is the first you're hearing of it, consider chasing it in your life now, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Maybe we're just planting the seed and this idea will surface weeks from now for you in some relevant way. So I've been chasing this idea in my life this past week, and here's what's come up for me. I got clarity on where to look to find how to be useful. So I don't know about you, but in my life, somewhere along the way, I picked up this idea that the best way to function, the most fail-safe way, was to try to figure out what others expected of me and then go and do that thing. You know, easy, right? But actually it's not, and it is uh, troublesome in a lot of ways when you function in this way, I've learned. So, because it turns out uh, it's not other people's responsibility to figure out what I should do. For one thing, it's hard to know what other people think. I can't actually read their minds. And a second reason is they're all busy figuring out what they should do, so nobody's telling me what I should be doing anyway. So along the way, I learned that one word for this way of operating is called codependency. It's taken considerable effort and a lot of learning for me, but more and more I'm figuring out how to be myself, who I really am, and not this patchwork being that results when my modus operandi is to try to figure out what other people want me to be and then somehow adapt myself to that. So that's some setup, and I have awareness about that now, but whether it's, you know, a part of my hereditary evil or whatever you want to call it, this default mode of codependency still surfaces from time to time. And, you know, sometimes I come to realize that it's been active in little corners of myself that had gone unnoticed before. So here's how this ties in with what came up for me this week. This 
virtual work setting that many of us are now accustomed to has revealed some of these little corners in myself. Since I'm not seeing my teammates in person, I can't rely on any in-person cues, any of the things I might normally have subconsciously used to conjure this idea in my mind of what others thought of what I was doing, and then, you know, adjust myself accordingly. But so being virtual has cut me off from that source that allowed this one part of myself to keep running its little background codependency operation. (laughs) And so now as Providence would have it, this year has put me in this vacuum where I just have to figure out who I am for myself and that and I have to work with just what I have. So this can certainly be confronting at times, but it's really been, you know, a godsend because so it's made me have to ask the question, how do I be my best self? And so this is where that idea that we're chasing this week comes in that God created the universe so that usefulness could exist. Because here's a favorite related passage of mine from Secrets of Heaven 5949. Now, you might want to write that number down and look it up and read the whole thing sometime because it's awesome. And it all really relates beautifully with this subject of usefulness. So here's the New Century Edition translation and unpublished translation I've got connections. Um, All right. So here's 5949. We have every obligation to take care of our body, making sure it is nourished, clothed, and indulged with worldly pleasures. The whole point, though, is the soul, not the body. The point is for the soul to function in a healthy body that responds properly and to have the body as its fully obedient instrument. The soul will then be our final purpose except that the soul will not be a final, but only an intermediate purpose. We will take care of our soul, not for its own sake, but for the sake of services we then perform in both worlds. And when being useful is our goal, the Lord is our goal, because he disposes us to be useful and oversees the useful activity itself. So not only is it mind-blowing that Uh, There are services I'm performing in the spiritual world right now. You know, uh, I didn't know that, but it's probably true. But this number gives me my marching orders. It's not about what I think other people think I should be doing. It's about taking care of myself so that I can be the most useful, cultivate my own inner relationship to God, and then function from that soul anchored point of origin. So, How I take this idea and really bring it into my life in this virtual work situation, this sort of providential vacuum I find myself in, I have myself and my connection to God to figure out how best to operate. So, and this this passage gives this beautiful hierarchy. So, you know, starting with the body at the, the bottom, the foundation, and then that looks towards the soul, which look to, looks towards being useful, which then is synonymous with the Lord. So so for me in my life, in this setting, I take time to exercise, to meditate, to get enough sleep, to practice awareness of my inner state so that I can be responsive to just the changing day to day. If I find that there's a lot of anxiety building up in me, then I know I need to give myself extra care to reconnect with truth and with a loving awareness. 
And then this foundation allows me to show up in my relationships and be more tuned in to that, you know, inner uh, calling of usefulness that is really being directed by, by God. And so at the core of all this is this interconnection to God, to usefulness as the goal. And so what comes first isn't what other people think. First, it's what's most useful from my connection with God. And then that connection or goal informs me how to care about what other people think, but not in some codependent way, but in a discerning way that can come from a grounding in what is wise, most wise and loving. So one awesome way that Swedenborg puts this, this phrase, is that it's up to each of us to act on our own initiative on behalf of the Lord. And so we're this critical pivot point. So God created the universe so that usefulness could exist. And it says in this number I just quoted, the 5949, that the Lord disposes us to be useful and oversees the useful activity itself. So we just have to show up. Like, that's a pretty sweet deal. You know, ground ourselves in this intention of usefulness and then trust that the Lord's going to guide us in that and just take care of ourselves, of our body and soul to be able to show up. It was uh, useful for me to get this clarity this week. How many times can I say useful in one segment? And But that may not have happened if I hadn't had this intention to participate in this week's chase. So I invite you to chase this idea in your own life and see what insights come. Now, this next week on the Off the Left YouTube channel is a break week. But then on Monday, February 22nd, we'll be launching our next chase. So catch our Chasing Swedenborg episode that day on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. At the end of the show, we'll be meeting up with Curtis and Jonathan to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. But first, let's go visit the desk of the NCE. Hey there, we've done six months of Inside Off the Left Eye and we're having a ball. But what has it been like for you? If you have a minute, there's a link in the description of this episode to a simple three-question survey. We want to keep creating a podcast that you love, so please let us know what you think. Now, back to the show. It's the NCE Spotlight. So what treasures will be revealed this week? Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. It's so fun to talk about these things. Yes. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you here. So I would love to know what's what's on your mind. What more what more is in store? Well, I'm still thinking uh, this may be my last set of thoughts on the subject of Swedenborg's printers and publishers for a while. It's great. But there's been... one more shoe to drop. I don't know what the right uh, analogy would be. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, Swedenborg had two main people who were helping him in 1749 when he got started with Secrets of Heaven. John Lewis was his publisher and John Hart was his printer. And um, so we've talked a lot. We've talked about both of those and we've talked about um, particularly about Mary Lewis and how she took over the business. And we looked at the back of Marriage Love in a previous podcast and that M-I-S-T-R Hart and M-I-S-T-R Lewis. And so we, we're, we're certain that that's Mary Lewis. Uh, 
Right. Mistress Lewis. But is Lewis. there a mistress heart? Mm-hmm. So let's look at the heart side a little bit. So John Hart died uh, later than John Lewis did. John Lewis died in 1755. John Hart died in late 1762. Okay. And um, he, unlike the Lewises, had a son. So the son would be kind of on tap to take over the business. That would be sort of the usual course of events. Yeah. But uh, we can tell from the records that the son didn't take over until 1769. Uh, One of the problems with doing this kind of research is that John Hart, H-A-R-T, is a very common name. It seemed sometimes when I was doing the research... (laughs) Like hundreds of John Harts died every year. (laughs) They were just so hard. You know, London was just full of people named John Hart. But, and you'd have different spellings, you know, sometimes. So you're trying to chase them around. But Mm. John decided, John and his wife decided to give their son a distinctive name of Harris Hart. Okay. And Harris, you can find... Harris became quite a prominent, successful publisher, um, died in 1787, and left his considerable business. So he actually left a will, and we have his handwritten will, and it's amazing that you can find these things. And so uh, we know that he took an apprentice in April of 1769, and uh, I don't believe you could take an apprentice unless you were the boss. It's not just like... Anybody yes. could take an apprentice because this was an officially listed thing and money changed hands and so forth. It was kind of a regulated environment. Yeah. The Stationers Guild and all that, which is what the printers were called. Hmm. And um, uh, Harris Hart doesn't marry until 1778 and then dies in 1787. Yeah. Um, and so we do have a birth record for him. The name is slightly different where they have an E on the end of heart. Hmm. And what I really want to know, and this, it's unlike some of our other podcasts on this subject, because this one, there's sort of a sense of the the fish that got away kind of thing that Hmm. I'm still working on it. I actually had plans to go to England last June and do research on this, but then COVID hit and travel restrictions and so on. Uh. I haven't been able to go. But uh, John is buried in St. Bride's Church, which was right uh, near Popping's Court, where he had his printer's business. And uh, so we have a baptismal record for Harris, and he's the son of John, who is said to be a printer, but it doesn't give... The wife's name. I want a name oh, for her. Yes. It's frustrating. There's uh, two little clues that the wife took over the business between 1762 and 1769. Hmm. Uh, one is this statement at the end of Marriage Love where it says Mistress Hart, you know, uh, right. because we know that right. was Mistress Lewis and it uses the same letters. And so chances are John Hart's widow had taken over the business at that point. And we also have one ad, a print ad. Again, uh, uh, this 
piece of paper was um, just pasted into a volume at the Swedenborg Society. Oh, well. That yeah. has this ad on it that reads very much like a lot of the ads at that time. It would say, sold by E. Period Hart Printer in Poppings Court, Fleet Street, and by M. Period Lewis in Paternoster Road near Cheapside. Huh. Now, that was a typical kind of formula for how Swedenborg would tell you you know, where to find his works, as we talked about last time. And so this E. Hart, it was put in a copy of the work that's been traditionally titled Apocalypse Revealed or Revelation Unveiled in the New Century Edition, which was published in 1766. So in this period between 62 and 69, we have this tantalizing mention of E. Hart (laughs) selling Swedenborg's works. And this mention two years later of Mistress Hart before the son is old enough or apprenticed or whatever was necessary for him to take over. And then we have uh, four different ads, I think, in 1770 that mention sold by H. period Hart in Poppings Court, Fleet Street, and also M. Lewis in Paternoster Road near Cheapside. Same sort of formula. So I think Divine Providence... Doctrine of the Lord, Revelation Unveiled, uh, and Marriage Love were all said to be sold by H. Hart. So this change in initial, it doesn't give us much to go by. But there's an anecdote that seems important here, and let me read that to you if I can. Okay. This younger Mr. Hart apparently met with an early translator and follower of Swedenborg's by the name of Provo, And they met in 1779, and Mr. Hart told Mr. Provo this story, Hmm. that he thought Swedenborg a remarkable man, for while he was abroad, while Swedenborg was not in England, everything else but England is called abroad, you know, you understand. Sure, (laughs) yes, yes. Old Mr. Hart, his father, died in London. On Swedenborg's return... Now, see, if that was 1762, if I can interrupt the story to say uh, we talked in previous podcasts about the fact that Swedenborg had to leave and because of the seven years war that was going on. And he went back to Stockholm, was there for a long time and couldn't publish his works and finally returned to Amsterdam in 1763. So Swedenborg was abroad. He was away from London during that time period. Right. So... Uh, while he was abroad, old Mr. Hart, Harris's father, died in London. On Swedenborg's return, he went to spend an evening at Mr. Hart's house in Popping's Court. After being let in at the street door, he was told that his old friend, Mr. Hart, was dead. We don't know the year on this, but I think it must have been in 1763-64. Swedenborg wintered in Amsterdam oh, at that time, and it yeah. was a really a quick hop, skip, and a jump to get over to England. Uh, there's some evidence that he did go over and present some of his works to the uh, Royal Society, you know, in early 1764 and that sort of thing. So, after being led in at the street door, he was told that his old friend, Mr. Hart, was dead, to which Swedenborg replied, and this reply apparently stayed with the son. Mm-hmm. because he reported it years later in 1779. Hmm. Swedenborg said, 
I know that very well. For I saw him in the spiritual world while I was in Holland at such a time. You know, all it says in the story is at such a time. So they figure it it was around the time of his death. Also, Swedenborg said, while coming over in the packet to England, he is not now in heaven. Interesting thing to tell the surviving son. (laughs) Uh, but is coming around and is in a good way to do well. This much surprised the widow and the son. Uh Ah, you've got a cast of characters here. There's a widow (laughs) and a son. For they knew that he was just come over. You know, Swedenborg had just arrived. He didn't have time to, to know this by any other means. You know, it's not like the Internet, right? Yes. And they said that he was of such a nature that he could impose on no one, that he always spoke the truth concerning every little matter and would not have made any evasion, even if his life had been at stake. Mr. Hart, the account continues, the father printed all the Arcana Celestia in Latin. Swedenborg was fond of his company and often went to spend an evening there, and he also liked the Hart's daughter, who was then about 10 years old. So he'd taken a shine to the, to the daughter. He seemed to love the family. He would go over, and as soon as he came back, he went right over there, knocked on the door, yeah. and knew already this, this news that the father had died. Again, tantalizing. Aww. All it says is the widow. Use your names, people. But... <laughs> We don't have a name for her, but we suspect that her uh, first name started with an E. Right. And uh, Elizabeth was a popular name. It might be Eleanor. It might be who knows uh, what. Yes. But uh, tantalizing. And I've wondered if I went to look at the baptismal records or the burial records at St. Right. Bride's. Presumably she's buried uh, where her husband is buried. Is her name listed on a headstone? Could or be. does it just say uh, widow yeah. of the printer or <laughs> unhelpful Let's like hope that? Not. <laughs> she didn't become as famous as Mary Lewis, so she doesn't sure. end up in the books. Right. You know, a little more low key. But she was selling his works. You know, that ad meant go here to buy it. Like right. she was like Mary Lewis, a one stop shop where you could get yep. all of Swedenborg's works, including and keeping the, the ones- business. Yeah, yeah keep, keeping the business alive from... That's right. The ones published in Amsterdam, she had too, because in, uh, Apocalypse Revealed, published in 1766, was done in Amsterdam. And yet yes. that little piece of paper that was pasted into the copy that is now held in the Swedenborg Society in London uh, advertised that this is where you could get the book. Oh, So I would really <laughs> oh, love to have an opportunity to go to England again uh, and research, uh, look for this, because it would be great to be able to just have a whole name rather than just an initial and to see, are we right in this supposition that that mistress heart was the widow who took over the business until the son was old enough to take an apprentice and to manage the business himself and then later to get married and then to pass away only nine years after that. So it's just a fascinating little piece of history. But this is whatever you're doing, every every question that gets answered generates five more questions. And it's so fun to to do this work and to try to penetrate the fog between here and 1762 and try to see what was going on. 
Oh man, and it's an it's an active case. So an we'll see if case. we ever get the That's chance right. to you know follow up on it. The mystery of Mistress Hart. Thanks so much, Jonathan. And let's meet up now with Curtis to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. Hey, Curtis and Jonathan. Hello. Hey there. Here we are together at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. All right. And this week, we are diving into the mysteries of Swedenborg's Journal of Spiritual Experiences. And mm, yes. And for this, he, I mean, because it's, it sounds like you're talking about something when you say, the Swedenborg's Journal of Spiritual Experiences, but it's actually this very uh, multifaceted thing that has an interesting history unto itself. So, and now I'm drawing this information from this handy volume that's the essay volume for the New Century Edition translation. You might know of it, Jonathan. Um, I heard and, of it. Yeah. Everybody's heard of it. Yes. It's, it's a cultural <laughs> New phenomenon. New York Times bestseller. <laughs> so what I know about spiritual experiences from that volume is that Swedenborg was writing them over the course of from 1747 to 1765 so he's 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 just always chronicling his spiritual experiences over what is that almost 20 years and so it's his sort of personal notes document and but he also numbered paragraphs and stuff because then he ended up drawing from it and including things from his spiritual experiences in his published theological works. And and we know he really cared about it because he even made an index of it, right? So, right. and we've, we've celebrated the glories of inde- indices here before. Um, and we know he cared and, about it because it's super awesome. And how could you not care? There's so much gold to mine in this Journal of Spiritual Experiences. Yes. Unbelievable. And... And that's also, so that's even the beginning of it, is that uh, the early days of his spiritual experiences were really just marginal notes in other works he was doing. Like, he's, he was writing Word Explained, and then he was doing an index of the Bible. And um, and so we've now collected all of those, or not me, obviously, but people over time have collected those and published them as one, you know, four-volume thing um, that we call spiritual experiences. And... The index is our key because it's through the fact that we have Swedenborg's index that he made of his spiritual experiences that we know that there's almost 200 numbers missing from it. Right. Yes. That if you open up volume one of spiritual experiences, you'll get to this part in it where the numbers start getting really tiny because they're just Swedenborg's notes of this is his index reference of what that number is although we don't have that we don't know where those numbers actually went so we don't know what he actually said for all of these little notes of his index from it's also the beginning of his index numbers 1 to 148 wow Mm. so that's like it just seems like quite the quite the chunk to be missing um and if memory serves in his index he'll deal with like often there are multiple entries. There's five or six different entries in the index will point back to this material. 
but often they're worded the same way in each place, so you don't necessarily learn more from these different points of entry. But mm-hmm. but the editor, who happens to have the last name of Odner, um, <laughs> put this together and um, was able to kind of reconstruct these missing numbers. Ah, oh, see, that's the mystery. And, and that it took that kind of careful work to piece together this thing because, yeah, like you say, Curtis, we're all so interested when you spend any time in Swedenborg, you eventually want to go back and, you know, crack open those volumes of his spiritual experiences because it gives you such an amazing firsthand experience of him going through it, you know, and having having this, as we've explored in this podcast a lot, is this, you know, inner transformation that he's going through. Yeah. And there is a huge incidence of ideas diversity in his spiritual experiences volumes. You know how they'll give out the statistics like there's more trees in one acre of rainforest than in the entire North American continent or more tree species. Oh, yes, yes. It's like that with, with novel ideas in Swedenborg's Journal of Spiritual Experiences. You can go in like Secrets of Heaven. There's a lot of places. I love those books. They're great. But there's it's sometimes you'll hear ideas that he's mentioned in other places or it'll take longer <laughs> to explain. You can kind of go through and a lot of the time you'll recognize ideas from places. But every number in spiritual experiences uh, has the potential to be something that doesn't occur anywhere else in his whole canon. Oh, uh. That's such a good point. And now what I have to reveal to you and what we'll be talking about in this segment is the fact that we don't have those numbers except one portion of it was found, this scrap of that section of spiritual experiences came to light and it is a piece of number 29. And on that scrap, or Swedenborg was writing that part of spiritual experiences on February 8th, 1747. So hey. that's where we are this week in history was when Swedenborg didn't know it, but he's writing this information down and turns out it's going to be sort of the sole survivor of of these first 150 numbers of spiritual experiences that that is extant as far as we know, you know. I mean, there is more, always more to be revealed. Um, but... And yeah, so I'll say that February 8th, not to be confused with Swedenborg's birthday, <laughs> which we were uh, just celebrating before, because um, he's writing in 1747. So he's talking in the Julian calendar of February 8th, not the Gregorian calendar, That's if right. I have that right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so what was he writing about on this day in 1747 on this scrap? And this, so this week in history, he's in Stockholm and he's studying the book of Genesis, but he's actually, it's in this moment that he's sort of on the verge of quitting Word Explained. And so he's doing this in-depth biblical study and then it's, and then he just drops the thing like a hot potato and has this inner shift in himself where he becomes committed to starting from the beginning again and that's when he launches into secrets of heaven so it's at the end of by the end of 1747 he'll have decided to officially leave his position on the board of mines and you know devote his time to writing secrets of heaven but in this moment he's 
writing, uh, you know, just at that tipping point and and writing these early numbers of spiritual experiences. And so this this little scrap that we have is now called um, the bath fragment. And I can uh, share a little bit later about sort of the history around why we call it that. But um, I just thought I might read a little bit to you guys. Would you, you want some story time? Sure. Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> so here is an excerpt of the bath fragment. And so it's number 29 in spiritual experiences. Swedenborg just launches in, also distinguished into heavens, according to their different kinds of mental belief, are the angels who govern inward human thoughts. For people have around them an inward and a very inward heaven, even an innermost one. I also was enabled by the mercy of God the Messiah actually to share my thoughts for a while with those who were in the heaven of understanding, or rather to have contact with them through my thoughts and by intermediaries to speak with them. I was even allowed to purify my thoughts to the point where I directly touched those who were in the heaven of belief based on understanding. So what a fascinating little insight into what is on Swedenborg's mind on this day in 1747. When you've got a record of a uh, several different heavens of us uh, that thoughts can be purified, that that purification allows contact with different parts of heaven. There's a lot that you would have lost if you lost that bath fragment, which I'm assuming yeah. somebody found in the bath, right? <laughs> yeah. In Bath, England. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, I don't think it would have survived if it got Again, submerged did anyone in a check bath. Swedenborg's bath. Oh, there's a fragment left in there. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. It's, you know, because he's very early on still in his, he hasn't even started writing Secrets of Heaven. He's still in the early days of getting comfortable with like, I can sort of talk to spirits and how I think changes my spiritual connections. And I have all of these inner parts of myself that, you know, connect, like you say, connect me with different communities in heaven. So, uh so interesting. It strikes me that uh, just a couple of years ago, he was just um, mind boggled by the fact that a spirit knew what he was thinking, you know, that there was any presence with him. And now he's discovering there are layers and he can talk to them. It gives me a little taste of how exciting that must have been and, and you know, dizzying sometimes, I imagine. But mm-hmm that he figures out, oh, I can talk to these people and it affects my thinking. When my thinking is purified, I can do this and I can do that. And um, mm. and also just beautiful, that word understanding, because um, yeah. basically the teaching of Protestant Christianity at the time uh, was that you need to hold your understanding under obedience to faith. Like, don't think about it too hard. Yeah. And Catholicism definitely felt like, well, there's a huge mystery and and all that. So this idea that you could understand heaven and that you could think with angels uh, mm. just was a very exciting, not a boring mid-February doldrum type of experience, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, that's so interesting because he's, I just love that, you know, yeah, that he's he's figuring out that 
you can have agency with your own thoughts and that your thoughts, you know, I mean, it's commonplace to us now because we live in this world where everybody's talking about, you know, like question your thoughts or don't believe your thoughts or, you know, like has this way we talk about the power of positive thinking and all this kind of stuff. But he's just on the front lines. It seems to go against the grain of, you know, his religious understanding that he's had up to that point and opening this whole new world that has several dimensions to it. Because I love that idea of finding out like, oh, I have access to these inner heavens even more inward than the first ones I thought I had. You know, just that's so um, optimistic or promising, hopeful. Like that's, that's just great. I feel like we would be uh, remiss if we don't talk a little bit about the uh, historicity of this bath fragment and how it got to be called such a name. And so, and I, I'm so interested in this kind of stuff. So here's, Here's your little uh, history trivia on the bath fragment. So it was found pasted on the back of a frontispiece portrait of Swedenborg in a copy of the first English edition of Heaven and Hell. So Heaven and Hell, uh, or this first English edition, was published in 1778. And so, and they we know that this, the book that it was found in belonged to a guy who was named Reverend, or he was a reverend, um, S. Dean, I don't have his first name, but he was a minister in the Church of England who became an advocate for Swedenborg's teachings when he learned of them from uh, the Reverend John Clues, who we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, where he, you know, an early proponent of Swedenborg's teachings and uh, is an amazing guy to research. You could look him up. Um, And so this Reverend Dean is... What I love is he's known to have purchased Swedenborg's gilt-headed walking stick from Richard Shearsmith. And what you need to know about that is that Swedenborg died in Richard Shearsmith's house in 1772. It's where he was staying in England. And and so afterwards, maybe Jonathan, you have more information on this, but uh, there were you know, certain belongings of Swedenborg's that just some people happen to walk away with some of them. Sounds like other things got purchased. But so this Dean uh, purchased Swedenborg's walking stick. And so that's all the evidence we have is like, did he happen to see this, you know, slip of paper and he took it with him? Um, We don't know, but that's could be how he got this fragment, which then got passed from hand to hand over the decades until, um, Somewhere around the mid-19th century, it was given to the New Church Society at Henry Street Bath, so in Bath in England, and that's why it's known as the Bath Fragment, because then later in the mid-20th century, the Bath Society presented it to the Swedenborg Society. So um, that's, that's what I know about it now, but interesting to trace the path of of this, you know, little scrap of paper that Swedenborg wrote that passed from person to person and now gives us this interesting insight about, uh, you know, Swedenborg's, you know, experiences, learning about the nature of thought and its connection to communities of the spiritual world. Come on, let's find some more. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
if Swedenborg stopped writing in in that diary in the Journal of Spiritual Experiences seven years before, and it had been patchy for quite a while before that. It was just intermittent, you know, for a while. Two-thirds of the work, I think, is in the first couple of years or, or something. Right. Uh, so it's not all kind of even like a regular journal or something. But interesting, if he had that, including those early pages, with him in England when he died. Yes. And interesting, if he didn't and it somehow wandered over from Stockholm or something. You know, I don't know. It's just interesting to wonder how this came to be. In the Bath <laughs> right. is in the southwest of England, really beautiful town where there were ancient Roman baths there, literally, you know. There you go, Curtis. Yeah, right. <laughs> but how did that happen? Mystery. Now it's come all the way to us. So that's amazing. All right. Well, such a pleasure to talk to you both, Curtis and Jonathan. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next time inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to never miss when a new episode comes out. And while you're at it, consider rating us on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. That would be a huge gift to us and helps others find the show. If you're hungry for more, you can explore all of our spiritually enriching content at our website, offthelefteye.com. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.